You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Sleep apnea, when untreated, can lead to a variety of medical problems. How do we suspect, diagnose, and then motivate our patients to pursue this disorder? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host, and with me today is Dr. Joseph Golish, professor of medicine and head of sleep medicine within the Department of Pulmonology at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Golish. Oh, you're very welcome, Dr. Friedman. Sleep apnea, I've heard that this is a very underdiagnosed condition, and then other so-called experts have said that we're treating too many people for this. How common is sleep apnea? Uh, it's terribly common, and yet usually unrecognized. I won't say almost always, but of the 30 million or so people that have it, only about 10 to 20 percent know they have it, so that there's another 80, 90 percent of the population with this disease who are at risk for the morbidities, um, sequelae of it, that don't know they have it. And, and it's because the manifestations are really insidious and they you know, often occur mainly at night and it's actually the spouse that may be more aware and the daytime symptoms can be very, very subtle. And in the office, how shall we go about identifying our patients who might have this disorder, certainly with fatigue and obesity, but are, are there other things on the history and clinical evaluation? Well, that point that you just mentioned about fatigue, interestingly, our insomniacs very often complain of fatigue, but the apnea patients, not so much fatigue, hmm. their complaint is hypersomnia, you know, the tendency to doze off and be drowsy. And it seems that those symptoms are similar, and you know, we often lump them together, but in trying to identify the high-risk patient, if you can distinguish those two symptoms, fatigue generally is a person who has a lack of energy, a lack of vigor, enthusiasm, strength, and they don't doze off. The insomniacs almost never doze off during the day, yet their fatigue scales are sky high. What tool can you use? In all our exam rooms, we put the Epworth sleepiness scale to identify the person who's sleepy. Now, it doesn't say why they're sleepy. It doesn't tell us that. It may be appropriate sleepiness for sleep deprivation, but it does semi-quantitatively identify the sleepy patient. What the scale consists of is simply eight questions it asks the person to put themselves in, in eight different circumstances, and then it asks them how likely in, under those circumstances would they be to doze off. Never would be a zero, and if it would be a high probability of dozing, it would be three. And if it's some in-between, then a one or a two would be the answer. So that if a person's not sleepy at all and ranks zero in all eight circumstances, such as you know, sitting in a car as a passenger or watching TV or whatever. If they're not sleepy at all, it's zero out of 24 points. If they're terribly sleepy, all those eight circumstances would give them a high probability of falling asleep. And generally, normal is less than 10 out of 24. More than 10 suggests a problem with excessive daytime sleepiness or hypersomnia. And it's a very easy questionnaire to administer in the office. It's quick. And I've heard some people put more weight on, I believe it's that last question about while you're driving a car, do you doze? Do you put more weight on that particular one? Well, it depends. You know, some people don't drive or some people can't drive for one reason or another or their, their spouse is ordered them not to drive and the spouse always drives. So that question can sometimes be misleading. Having said that, though, that's the question that raises the big red flag as far as a public health risk, because it turns out that the untreated sleep apnea patient has about eight times the risk of a fatal car accident as the general population, so that, you know, we'll talk about other cardiovascular morbidities and so on, but one of the most important risks of untreated 
sleep apnea with associated sleepiness are car accidents. And car accidents that may affect not only them, but other innocent people on the road. So there's a public health issue. And uh, commercial trucking companies have become increasingly aware of this and the liability that goes with it. And so that uh, because when those large rigs crash, there's often a great deal of harm to other drivers on the road. Now, besides that Epworth scale, to distinguish sleepiness from fatigue, there's also a fatigue severity scale, the FSS, as opposed to the ESS. And that scale asks a person, I think it's nine different questions, and there are seven points per question, and if they're terribly fatigued, uh, you know, there'll be 63 points out of 63. And then, uh, you know, other gradations short of that would indicate milder degrees of fatigue. These two questionnaires are very good at distinguishing the sleepy patient from the fatigue patient. And what you'll often see is that the person with sleep apnea or the person who's sleep deprived or the person with narcolepsy will score very high on the upward scale, but their fatigue scales will be pretty darn low. And on the other hand, the person who has some other sleep disorder, you know, like insomnias, for example, or chronic medical illness or chronic fatigue syndrome, you know, chronic renal failure and so on, those patients will score very high on the fatigue scale, but not very high at all on the upward sleepiness scale. So my recommendation is for the physicians to put in their exam rooms a little questionnaire that consists of the upward scale, the fatigue scale, if there's difficulty distinguishing sleepiness from fatigue, and there's, it isn't always. Sometimes it's very obvious from just discussing it. And then in addition to that, we usually ask how many hours of sleep the person generally gets per night to quickly weed out people who are sleep deprived. And then there's a little Berlin questionnaire that's on the web and it's commonly used. It just consists of a few questions about whether a person is a loud snorer, if they have episodes where they have been witnessed uh, to stop breathing at night, the witnessed apneas, or they have awakened choking, gagging, uh, trouble breathing at night. So between those several questionnaires, and you know, it's interesting, when I began in medicine, questionnaires were thought to be uh, really weak kinds of information, for either for clinical studies or to assess patients. But now we've discovered that those are becoming more important than some of the very objective tests that we often do because they affect one quality of life, two, they're tools that have been validated, they're readily available, and you can give them sequentially to patients and, and evaluate changes. So in sleep, as in a lot of other areas in medicine, uh, the questionnaires can be a great tool identifying patients. Well, those are very good historical differentiations and points that you've made. Are there particular things other than that crowded neck we should look for on the physical exam? That's a very good question. Now, the neck girth is a very important number. A large neck girth has a very strong association, independent of obesity, interestingly, with a risk for apnea. So that, for example, professional football players, the line players, may not be obese at all, yet they have very large necks and they have a very high risk of having a significant obstructive sleep apnea. So a large neck girth is something that can be done quickly in an exam room. And so that, to me, is one of the most important parts. Also, you mentioned obesity. The person with BMIs, you know, above 30 or so, the risk goes up considerably. Also, age, uh, although that's a, a little bit tricky because uh, sometimes we'll talk about normal apnea hypopnea indices. That's the number of spells a person has per hour of sleep. Normal is less than five. Some people believe in the elderly that as many as 10 can be considered normal. But increasing age is also associated with increased apnea. Some of the other physical findings, 
the crowded nasal pharynx, you know, just looking at the back of the throat and seeing a long uvula, a long soft palate, big base of tongue, crowding, those are all associated with apnea. And then also nasal obstruction. Uh, it turns out that nasal blockage of whatever cause, whether it's polyps or rhinitis or sinusitis, that that upstream resistance increases nasopharyngeal collapse in a person who's predisposed to apnea due to obesity or their own anatomy. And, and later on we'll talk about treatment, but often adequate treatment for apnea is simply to open the nose. But those would be physical findings to pay attention. Oh, one other would be a retronathic jaw, a person who has a lot of overbite, that the jaw receding is something that is a risk factor for apnea. So crowded pharynx, obstructed nose, retronathic jaw, large neck girth, and obesity, I would say those would be the most important physical findings. And then when I have had a patient who has some of those characteristics, I'm suspicious of the diagnosis. I've been using a, a little more of this overnight oximetry as an initial thing simply because patients will do it to measure their oxygen saturation at home instead of a sleep lab. Is that justified? Is there any real role for that? Well, that's a good question, and that actually plays into this very hot, uh, hotly contested issue that CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Reimbursement, is trying to grapple with. It's been suggested by the otolaryngology community that home testing, of which oximetry would be one type, should be reimbursed. Uh, up till now, CMS and most other reimbursers have held the line and required solely in-lab studies for both a diagnostic study and for if a person has a lot of sleep apnea and requires continuous positive airway pressure or CPAP, uh, that those be done in the lab. Otherwise, no reimbursement. And the reasons are really quite long. It hasn't been an economic issue as far as the sleep community, but the major sleep organizations have really tried to restrict that. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that the acid test for a good screening test is that you don't miss any people who have significant disease. And the problem with oximetry and some of the other home studies is that they're very useful if they're positive, you know, they're specific and they have positive predictive values, but a normal oximetry or a normal home study of certain types does not exclude the disease. So uh, we may be telling patients that they don't have any significant apnea, they don't need any further treatment, and yet they may be at risk for hypertension, strokes, heart attacks, diabetes, and so on. So that restriction to the home study is that it can miss people with disease. And often, if the oximetry is abnormal, patients often still get a sleep study on top of it. So it often doesn't alter the next step. If by history and exam, questionnaires and all, you feel that this person's high risk for apnea, normal oximetry doesn't allow you to ignore and to stop at that point. It's not a diagnostic endpoint. Having said that, in December, well, actually even more recently, uh, CMS has given some preliminary information, and it sounds like they're going to approve home testing in some form in some patients in an effort at saving dollars. Up till now, home studies weren't actually weren't any less expensive than in lab studies. So that was another reason not to go there. And then the, the third reason was attendance. When a technician attends a sleep study, it's a pretty dynamic interaction uh, where the 
patients often ask to assume a different position. The electrodes fall off and the person monitors them. The technologist may change the, the leads that are used and the EEG leads. And, and many of the home studies did not have electroencephalogram EEG. And the denominator for a sleep study is that one has to prove that the patient really did sleep, that you saw them at their worst, they got some REM sleep that was monitored, they spent time in the supine position, because both REM and the supine position can make existing apnea worse or bring out apnea in the patient who otherwise may not manifest it on their side or in other stages of sleep. So there were reasons why an unattended home study without uh, EEG, you know, even beyond oximetry, would not be adequate to exclude significant sleep apnea. Well, I want to thank Dr. Joseph Golish, who has been our guest as we've been discussing the evaluation of obstructive sleep apnea. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.